tonight, we'll conclude our study overviewing cults and the occult. By way of simple reminder, cult is a reference to those groups that look a whole lot like Christianity. They claim to be, but in truth aren't. Whereas the occult is wildly different. The occult is what you think of when you think of the demonic realm and all of those weird features and phenomena associated with it. That will categorize under the occult. And so tonight, we'll try to make sense of both of those. Would you join me as we pray? Ask God to help us, and then we'll begin our final study of the evening. Father in heaven, I thank you for these brothers and sisters and their earnest interest in this subject matter. I pray it's useful and helpful and edifying and faith-strengthening, soul-stirring. So use me in spite of me to do just that for these dear folks I love, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, spiritual warfare is no mere metaphor. We think of military, physical, bodily warfare, and we take it seriously. That's evident by the way we heavily invest. If you go look at our national budget, a most significant portion of it is dedicated to physical warfare. When you consider whether or not we take physical warfare seriously, well, it's pretty evident by the way we honor those who serve in it. There is a good right reason we have national holidays and we have a natural instinct as patriotic citizens of this particular nation to thank those who have served, to salute those who have given the ultimate sacrifice to secure our freedoms. It's evidenced by that. It's evidenced by the deep grief a family feels when they know of either a personal friend or a very family member themselves who has lost their life defending our freedom. We, we take physical warfare seriously, but isn't it odd that we who take bodily warfare seriously just are somehow, some way prone not to take spiritual warfare altogether seriously? We treat it kind of just like a mere metaphor. And the reason I'm making this assumption is because the truth is most of us don't really invest that much time into defending ourselves against spiritual warfare. We don't grieve over the lack of spiritual warfare. When we see spiritual warfare afoot, we, we yawn at it. it. You just don't see the same measure of investment, the same measure of great grief, the same measure of honor of those who are waging the good fight. We, we just don't take it altogether seriously. And here's what I want to lay upon your hearts tonight. It's not an altogether profound statement, but it's something that we need to be reminded of. That is that God does take it seriously. It is no mere metaphor in his eyes. There is a real enemy, the Bible says, who wages war with our soul. His desire is for you. There are flaming darts of the evil one. And one of his great masquerades is to get you to think that his greatest manifestation of warfare is through that red dragon-looking creature. The, the cartoons of old. But the truth is, as Scripture says, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Indeed, his greatest ministry is most appealing. 
It's not the person that you would naturally view as demonic. It's the person that you would view as not. And I want you to see as early as the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3, we see spiritual warfare afoot. It begins with the advent or the coming of deception, which is part and parcel of spiritual warfare. If you just wanted to boil spiritual warfare down to a word, it would be deception or a lie. And it's as early as Genesis 3 when God gives His good righteous decree that you can eat of any tree of the garden save one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day in which you eat it, you shall surely die. In the first verse of the third chapter of Genesis, that crafty snake comes in and what does he say? He deceives Adam and Eve. He lies and he asks a question that has echoed through the ages. He says, did God really say that? Did he really? No, 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 no. That's, that's not what he said. Here's what he actually said. In my judgment, beginning the world's first cult. Taking what God said and twisting it. Saying, no, 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 he did speak. But here's what he's really said. So we see the advent of the cults, these groups that claim to speak for God, claim to speak for Christ, but twist what he said. They began with the advent of deception in the Garden of Eden. But notice who did the deceiving. Who was that serpent? It's that one we call Satan, Diabolos, the devil, Lucifer, Who is this creature of which we speak? Where did the demonic come from? Admittedly, the Bible is not that explicit on the subject. But there are pieces that we can pull together from the Bible to attempt to paint a portrait of the devil. Includes, we believe the Bible teaches at least this, that when God created all things, He had an angelic host. And there was one great high covering cherub, some beautiful archangel creature that began. We don't know where this impulse came from. The scripture is not clear. All we do know is that there arose within him a desire to be as God was, to usurp his authority, to take the crown off of God's head and to place it upon himself, to enthrone himself. And God cast this great covering angel, Lucifer. That's what the name is. It's, an, it's this great morning star, this angel of light. He cast him from heaven along with a two-thirds of these angels who came down as the demons. These are those fallen angels. And there has been since this day the demonic world. Some theologians even surmise. I'm not saying I believe this. It's just an interesting uh, question. You don't really know the answer. But when they read Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's verse 2 say? Now the earth was formless and void and darkness hovered over the deep. There are some that will theorize that the poetic description of creation in that moment may be alluding to 
God creating the heavens and the earth, and then Lucifer and the angels that were cast out had now fallen to his created world, and therein lies the darkness hovering over the deep. I'm not saying, thus saith the Lord. I don't really know what I believe about that. There are some that suggest it. We don't know that. Here's what we do know. Somehow, some way, they fell, they came to earth, and since that day, there has been a ministry of the devil and demons, and it has manifested itself broadly in two great camps. There are two great ministries. Just like Hickory Grove has a panoply of ministries. We've got kids ministry, student ministry, missions ministry, you name it. Satan has two great ministries that he has been at work at. You could define them as cults and the occult. Cults being those groups that look a whole lot like Christianity and the occult being those groups that, man, they just give shivers down your spine. This, this is that gross demonic work that it's easier to spot. I want to do a very brief overview of the cults before we dive into the occult because I failed to do this. Honestly, if I had to teach this seminar over... This lesson I'm teaching tonight, I would actually teach week one, which I'm actually making the guy who's subbing for me at main campus out of town. I'm going to have him teach this lesson next week because I think it'll serve everybody better to get a tee up. Let's answer a few questions as we consider cults themselves. I want to give you a few marks. What are those things that distinguish a cult? What would you expect a, a cult or a Christian sect to look like? Here's just a few. You probably know this by now because a good majority of you have been here for the study on all these four major cults we've discussed heretofore. First thing I want you to note is a cult by definition claims to be Christian. Just remember that. This isn't like some crazy wacky group that's, you know, worshiping the moon, stars, and planets. These are people that claim to be Christian. They often cast themselves as a truer form of Christianity. Do you remember that Mormonism portrays themselves as Christ followers? Do you recall that Jehovah's Witnesses, they actually present themselves as one who can give a clearer view of what God has said in Christ? Do you remember Christian science, as wacky as it is, as some attempt to be Christian? I mean, I got the name in their denominational cultic name. Do you remember uh, Seventh-day Adventism, which we admitted should be asterisked. It's not in the same camp as Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian Science, but I contended that some of their core beliefs in my judgment put them at odds with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I don't lose any sleep putting them in a category of a cult, but if you feel the title sect is a more charitable term, I'm not going to quibble over that. Nevertheless, they present themselves as Christ followers but have beliefs that contradict the core gospel message of the faith. They, they claim to be Christians. But unlike a Christian group, because, you know, we claim to be Christians, so we all, we all get under the first mark here. But praise God, we don't get under the second one because the second mark of a cult is one that usually denies core doctrines. So in other words, this isn't a cult. a cult is not somebody that decides to baptize babies. We don't look at Presbyterians as cults. They're what we would just call a Christian denomination. They don't deny core doctrines. They just disagree with us on what you might call secondary doctrines. Those are those doctrines that genuine Christians can disagree on because the Bible, there's some debate on it, but you can still be Christian. It might be hard to do church together, but we're still Christian. 
A cult would deny one of those core doctrines that if you disagree here, we're not talking about the same faith anymore. I've used this illustration for over a decade in our new members class. If somebody joined the church for the first time and said, hey, Pastor Kyler, really love this church. I want to serve. Here's the deal. I hear that you are historical premillennialist. I'm an amillennialist. Can I go to church here? If you don't know what that means, I've proven my point. It doesn't really matter. But those are differing views on how the end times is going to work itself out. If I said, nope, you got to believe exactly what I believe about all the crazy chronology of the, old, of the end times, and if you don't, you're out of here. No, no way. Half of Hickory Grove would be out of here because Hickory Grove's all over the place on how to put all the end times together. But if that same guy said, hey, preacher, can I come to church here? But listen, I don't believe Jesus actually rose from the dead. I think he's still dead and buried. How many of you guys would be confident in your pastor if I said, nah, you know, let's agree to disagree. Come on, come teach the kids. No, that's a core doctrine. A cult denies a core doctrine, and so by definition, we would say you're outside the faith. And if you can recall, as we illustrated with Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian science and even with Seventh-day Adventism, there were core doctrines about the Bible, about who God is, about who Christ is, about how we are saved that were denied. They were outside the faith. So that would be the second mark of a cult. Let's look at a third one. They also take the Bible out of context, tends to be why they get these core doctrines wrong. So for example, oftentimes a cult will misquote the Bible altogether. How many of you ever heard of transcendentalism? Uh, Forgive me, transcendental meditation. Transcendentalism is something else altogether. Transcendental meditation, TM, that's a home and all those people that do all these little uh, meditative things to have some sort of spiritual connection. They, it originated with a guy who was quoting a lot of Bible, and he once said, as Jesus famously said, be still and know that I am God. Unfortunately, Jesus didn't say that. Now, Jesus is the triune God, and it was breathed by the Spirit in the Psalms, but he flat misquoted. I'm not saying he had some major doctrinal issue there, but be careful what you say. That's like people that say the Bible says cleanliness is next to godliness. That ain't there. So just remember, they often misquote or they'll misapply. So for example, Joseph Smith misapplied a Bible verse. He took James 1.5, which says, ask for wisdom and God will give it to you. And he did that. He asked for wisdom and then claimed God gave it to him. But he claimed it through all of his wisdom poured out in the Book of Mormon. Now, why would we say that's a misapplication? Because if you claim that God has given you something that contradicts what he has already said, either you're a liar or he's a liar, and my money is on you. He misapplied the Bible altogether. Okay, here's another example. They do wordplay. I I mentioned this in another uh, series. Maybe it was church history. I can't recall. Or it might have been my overview of how to understand the Bible. Mary Baker Eddy, you remember that kind of crazy gal that was involved with Christian science? She would basically just flat make up junk about words in the Bible. So she found the word Adam in the Hebrew, Adam. And guess what she concluded? Adam's name in the Bible is Adam. That's like a dam, like an earthen dam. And that's what Adam is. He was a dam that was stopping up our relationship between God and his creation. He was like this dam of sin that kept us between the creator. Now, folks, 
I think that's even fanciful for a kid to make up. That is just flat making junk up. There is no textual basis whatsoever to make that conclusion. That's like closing your eyes and eeny, meeny, miny, moan, find a page, read it, and saying that is God's revelation to us now. Folks, it's amazing how many of these cults, when you dig into it, they have basically just made junk up. They have decided to make the Bible say what they'd like it to say. They speculate. So, for example, Mormons have, for example, taken in the Old Testament, you'll see in Ezekiel, he describes the stick of Judah and the stick of Joseph. And he decided the stick of Judah was referencing the Bible and the stick of Joseph was referencing Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon. And those were the two sticks. Folks, why is he wrong? Because if you can recall from our seminar on how to understand the Bible, what is the one critical clue that helps us understand what anything means? It's called context. You gotta read it in context. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. You can make it say whatever you want it to say. You gotta read it in context to know what it meant. And in context, there ain't no way that the stick of Joseph could have any reference to some guy that grew up in New York in the 1800s. This is clearly making the Bible, twisting the Bible to say what you want it to say. So that's another mark. Let's look at an additional one. An additional mark of a cult is that they claim to be led by divinely inspired leaders. Now, folks, here's the truth. If you ever meet a Christian that seems more enamored by their pastor than they are by their Savior, if you ever see somebody who, like in the New Testament, when Paul is railing against those people who said, I'm one of Apollos, or I'm one of Paul, or I'm one of this, that, or the other, beware. There is a great human impulse within all of us to follow a man or a woman and not the God-man. Beware. All of these cults tend to have one great common denominator. There was a man or a woman, some divinely inspired leader that was the center, the locus of it all. And always they took something God said and then said, I've got secret knowledge to change it. I've got something new to add to this. So, for example, you had Christian science. Who was their special divine leader? Mary Baker Eddy. Who were the Jehovah's Witnesses' divinely inspired leader? Charles Taze Russell. Who were the Mormons' divinely inspired leader? First Joseph Smith, then Brigham Young. Remember, if there is a person in particular that is the linchpin of it all, that is a huge red flag. Pastors come and go. There is going to come a day when Clint and I and our successors will die and we'll be buried and the church will keep going. We'll be a footnote. If you think that it is centered on some particular man, beware. God buries the workmen and keeps the work going. It is God who has spoken, not through some divinely inspired leader. Another mark. They tend to add or subtract from the Bible. Oftentimes they add. They're like, yeah, here's the Bible, but here's the rest. Mormonism had to supplement it with the Book of Mormon. Or the Jehovah's Witnesses were like, nah, let's cut some of this out. This doesn't, isn't necessary. Do you want to know what really could be defined as a cult today? I, I, honestly, in hindsight, I wish I had done this. One significant cult that you bump shoulders with every day, probably, and they're 
a cult for many reasons, one including they cut out good chunks of the Bible and don't believe it, is what you would call Protestant liberalism. Protestant liberalism or mainline Protestantism are basically churches all around Charlotte that have Baptists on it or have Presbyterian on it or have United Methodists on it, and they don't believe the Bible. They're called liberal churches, not because of politics, but liberal is a word we use to describe churches that don't believe the Bible is without error. They believe it's just a human document filled with a bunch of human errors. You could really call it a cult because they claim to be Christian, but they deny core doctrines of the faith, and they cut out parts of the Bible. Like Thomas Jefferson of old, they just scissor cut out all of the things that are mythological, things that any respectable, scientific, rational-minded individual in this post-Enlightenment era would never be found in the public workplace saying they believe. So beware of these groups that decide to add or subtract to God's word. Last mark is almost always they claim to be the true church. Oftentimes they present themselves as like a restoration of the true church. They are what Christ really intended. So those are just some marks of a cult. I don't need to belabor this point because we've already studied these. Some of the most significant cults of the day would be, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, often called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Christian Science, Oneness Pentecostalism. I didn't have a chance to talk about that. By the way, oneness is a critical word. I'm not saying Pentecostals are cults. I don't believe that. Uh, Pentecostals, by definition, tend to be pretty charismatic individuals. But oneness, Pentecostals, is a particular subset of Pentecostalism that is heretical. They are folks who believe that really there isn't a trinity, that there is just one God. Do you want to know who's a pretty well-known oneness Pentecostal individual? Y'all ever heard of the TV preacher T.D. Jakes? He's a very well-known. I think he had a talk show for a hot minute. I don't, is it still going? I don't think it's still going anymore. He's very well-known. Has a giant church in Dallas in a cultic category. Or uh, Seventh-day Adventism. We already discussed that last week. The Unity School of Christianity. Probably hadn't heard of it. Really not altogether that influential. It's headquartered in Kansas City, Missouri. I used to drive by. I used to live in Kansas City years ago. And I drove by. They have this giant, giant, giant tower that's a landmark in uh, the south uh, eastern part of Kansas City, and I would drive by it, and for years I had no idea what it was. I didn't realize I lived near a cult and drove by it day after day after day. It was founded in the late 1800s. It's kind of like Christian science-ish. I don't have time to go into it, but it's kind of in that strange little ilk, okay? There's just a few of those overviews of the cults, and let me just land a few texts of Scripture over you. Let them wash over you, because I want you to remember that this shouldn't surprise us. Cults began in the ministry of Satan as early as Genesis 3, and God warns against them time and again. Here's a simple sampling. Jesus gives us a great warning against this. He says in Matthew 7 that there are going to be false prophets who are going to come, so watch out for them. Paul warns us against them in 2 Corinthians 11 when he warns us that false apostles, deceitful workers masquerading as apostles of Christ are going to come. Do you all want to see... Do you see the, the vivid, picturesque word he used, masquerade? What's a masquerade? It's deception. It's trying to present yourself as something other than you are. These are people that look the part. They look like the type of preacher. Some of you are like spinning right now thinking, I've listened to T.D. Jakes. He's a pretty entertaining, interesting guy, and I've heard some Jesus-y stuff. I, I thought that was good. But where? 
It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. This is not an apostle of Christ masquerading as an apostle of Christ. Or John warns us in 1 John 4 and John 1 about many deceivers who are going to come. Anyone who runs ahead of the gospel and doesn't continue in the teaching of Christ, he says, does not have God. Peter warns us against them when he, yet again, says there are going to be false prophets and false teachers who are going to come. Jude warns us against this when he says there are going to be ungodly people who will pervert the grace of God. So beware. The Bible is not ignorant of Satan's designs. The Bible knows that there is a great ministry of deception at play, and so he calls us to not be ignorant of his designs, to learn to discern that which is true and not true. So you need to know what you believe so that you can detect what's not true. This is an overused illustration, but it bears repeating. Y'all ever heard how counterfeiters, uh, or how anti-counterfeiters, whatever you call them, how they prevent counterfeit bills? What's the study they do? They don't study all the counterfeits. They study the real thing, and they master it. They know what a genuine bill looks like, so that when they look at all the variations of counterfeits, They know what the real thing looks like, and they can draw the distinction. That is a great analogy for us. If you're thinking, preacher, I've got to become an expert on Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian science and Unity School and this, that, or the other, I can't do this. Don't worry about it. I'm 35. I've been a pastor for 15 years, 17 years. I didn't really study these in depth until recent years. What I have studied since the Lord saved me as a, what was it, 12 years of age, is I have studied the real thing. So get yourself in the Bible and master it. Know doctrine. Know what the Bible says about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. What it says about how we're saved. And if you can master that, you'll be able to sniff out when somebody starts parroting things that you know just don't sound right. Beware of these cults. But now let's turn a page because I have a feeling y'all came back for this. There is another group that we have not mentioned yet. The occult, from a Latin word, occulter or occultus, which means hidden or concealed. What is the occult? Let me give you just a few marks of groups that would not be categorized as cultic, but as occultic, and then we'll look at particular examples of them. Just a few marks. On the one hand, the occult kind of generally presents themselves as a group that is pursuing secret knowledge. They want to know something. Do you want to know the Bible actually describes the occult time and again? A most famous occultic group was a group that the Apostle Paul and the original disciples would have had to fight against. They don't name them explicitly. They name them implicitly many times in the New Testament. There was a group that arose very early in the history of the Christian church that said, we have secret, hidden knowledge. And this knowledge is going to help us know the truth. The word knowledge in Greek is gnosis. And this group consequently became known as the Gnostics, those who had knowledge, special secret knowledge that only they were privy to. And all these groups are very similar. They all are like, oh yeah, you don't actually have the real truth. The Bible doesn't have it all here. I got something secretive. If you could just come 
come see what I got inside my vest pocket, then, then you'll know the truth. They always kind of play off this secret knowledge, and consequently, the occult, that makes sense if occult actually means hidden or secret or mysterious. They also tend to explore powers other than God. These are groups that are obsessed with power and its manifestations, but in one sense, we are. I mean, we sing of power being manifested every Sunday, but it is centered in the person and work of our Lord. These groups love power, but they don't want it there. They want to look at it there and there. They want to find it somewhere else. So they're obsessed with looking, where can we see these powers at play elsewhere? They tend to look for it in the supernatural, the paranormal, the esoteric, the mystical. They want to find it anywhere but in God himself. They tend to equate the truth with mythology. Who did that? I just told you a few minutes ago. What did Satan do in the garden? He took what God said and said, myth. He didn't really say that. That's not true. And then they twist it and say, here's what he really meant. Let me tell you what he really meant here. Occultic groups tend to take truth claims and just say hogwash. That's just mythology. And then lastly, they without uh, exception deny the person and work of Jesus Christ. Almost all of them in some way, shape, or form are anti-Christ. You can see the spirit of anti-Christ in them all. And so now let's think through. What on earth am I speaking of? What constitutes the occult. There are several ways you can chop this up. This is a generally agreed upon way to do it, and I want to give you guys a few major categories, and a few of them have some subcategories to help you just kind of piece your mind together. The, the first major category of the occult is that there are several groups that practice what's called divination. You're probably familiar with that word, just growing up in Western civilization and also reading your Bibles, the word divination is repeated within. What exactly does it mean to practice divination? It's really foretelling events. It's, you know, fortune telling. It's foretelling or revealing this occult knowledge by means of some supernatural power. So it's basically using something supernatural to tell people what's happening in the future. So how do you do that? Well, Groups have different methods. And as I go through these methods, I'm guessing a lot of you have heard of all these but never knew what they actually meant. And when I tell you what they actually mean, you're going to laugh. Some of you may be disgusted and just be outraged, but I'm guessing some of you, like me, will be earlier in my office, I was laughing out loud thinking, people believe this? It's crazy. So, for example, one group likes to foretell the future through astrology. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Astrology comes from the Greek word astros, which means star, and ology is study of, so it's the study of the stars. And astrology strangely looks up at the sky and makes some fort, uh, fortune-telling predictions based off the angles of the stars, the planets, the sun, and the earth. So they have this belt, this invisible belt in the sky that the sun rotates on in a 24-hour period. And in this belt that they see wrapped around the world, they believe that there are quadrants. They divide it up into these 12 quadrants. They call those quadrants the zodiac. It's these animal creatures that tend to be reflected in uh, 
the star constellations you'll see up in the sky. So there's this, uh, you know, Leo or Taurus or uh, Libra or I'm trying to think of some of all these Cancer and Gemini, etc. They've got all these 12 creatures in this big loop around the sky. And they believe that you should study or observe the time in the sky. Do you want to know what that word is for studying the time? In the Greek, time is horo, and uh, study or observe is skopos, horoskopos, horoscope. A horoscope is this study of the time in that zodiac space in the sky. If you're confused, you're in good company. I don't understand how people actually believe this stuff. But they believe that if you like do all this math and read the horoscope, you can figure out all the angles between the stars and all their placements in the sky, and it can give you uh, cues on what's going to happen in your life. That's a quite common thing. A lot of people consult a horoscope. They, they are involved with the zodiac or with, divina, uh, with uh, astrology. That's the first one. They get a little weirder. Most of us are familiar with crystal gazing, that crystal ball. There is a practice where they will foretell the future, practice divination, by looking at a crystal ball. And they believe that if they stare into this crystal ball, they will end up coming into a, a trance of sorts. And in this trance, they'll see through it and they'll be able to predict the future. They often will do this not just with a crystal ball. They may do it with a pool of water or a mirror, which I'm not on like some anti-Disney crusade up here, by the way, but most of us are familiar with mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? It's straight divination, just to be clear. I'm not, again, I've watched Snow White, and I've watched it many times in my life. Not, I don't care. Go watch Snow White. But beware that that mirror, mirror on the wall is actually hearkening to the occult. It is a divination practice. It is crystal gazing. It is this view that you can look into a mirror and have somebody tell you something or look into a crystal ball and have somebody tell you something. A, a more common occultic practice, if you guys have this in your house, go throw it away tonight. I am going to go on a crusade on this one. It's the Ouija board. Y'all familiar with the Ouija board uh, sold by Parker Brothers? That's a board. I don't own one, but I've, I've researched it, and it's got all these numbers and, and letters on there. So it's this flat board. It has the numbers, or the letters, uh, uh, the numbers, zero through nine. And then it has typically the words yes and no, sometimes hello and goodbye, and a bunch of other letters of the alphabet. And evidently as it works is you'll put your hands on this uh, little heart-shaped piece, and together you will move this, and it will spell out things for you. And they believe that the spirit world is doing this. The assumption is that the dead are talking to you through this board. So when you're sitting there and you're together moving that piece, the dead is going to talk to you not audibly, but through letters. They're going to spell something out and tell you what's to come. And the Ouija board has been historically associated with the occult, with this demonic practice of communicating with the dead. So just beware of it. Another one that's really strange, and I, I actually... I got sidetracked this afternoon, and I started staring at my palms. <laughs> palm reading. I'm like, whoa, I didn't, I've never looked at the wrinkles on my palm. I now know the wrinkles on my palm. They, uh, the practice of palm reading, everybody do it right now. Just take out your palm, because it is pretty fascinating. 
and a bunch of baloney. So you all see all those very distinguished wrinkles on your palm. Well, they'll actually make predictions about your life based off how long the line is. So, for example, you've got that one line that goes kind of across your palm, not the ones that go down, but goes like right under the balls of your knuckle. And if it starts under your first finger, they say a certain thing about you. But if it starts under your second finger, it's another thing about you. And if it starts under your third finger, it's another thing about you. It's crazy. You go read it, and you're like, I never knew somebody actually. Somebody was really bored when they came up with this. <laughs> or if this, I was feeling really good about myself, because this line, if it's super long and wraps around, you're going to live a long life. And I'm like, mm, yes, I got one of those really long lines. It's crazy. It's crazy, folks. I don't understand. It changes. My palm doesn't look... It's wild. They'll sit there and they'll read your palms and try to make predictions about your life based off how long the line is, how deep it is, if there's breaks in it, if there's a little nodule in it, if uh, it starts in a particular place. They'll... In other words, they're making junk up based off random stuff. Now, if you think that's crazy, just wait till you get to the next one. Tarot cards. Y'all ever heard of a tarot card reader? So a tarot card reader, kind of what we typically think of when we think of like a fortune teller, it's a deck of cards. It was actually originally invented in the 15th century. It was actually a game. There were some people that would actually play a typical game called tarokini, but then they started to use it to tell the future. And there are 78 cards in this deck, and this deck has a bunch of wild symbols on it, just weird stuff. And they would shuffle the deck. I've never been to one of these, by the way. This is all research. But they'll shuffle the deck, lay it down on a table, fan it out, and then you select some cards face down so you don't know what you're grabbing. And then you take all those random cards that you've blindly pulled and you lay them in this prescribed pattern. And the way the cards fall in this pattern, because it's all kind of random chance, will tell you things about your future. Some of the cards represent the outcomes of your life, the challenges that will happen in your life, what's happened in your past, your hopes and your fears, things that are influential to you. Now, the truth is, guys, it's straight ridiculous chance. Like, the truth is, I could just make something up right now and just put some cards down here and tell Mark, hey, I've got all the... I could just make stuff up, and Mark would be like, ooh, that's really wild. Or he probably would say, you're psycho. The, the, the truth is... It's psycho. It's just a bunch of random stuff that they're making stuff up. And people that are in a desperate state, that desperately want hope, that desperately want some sense of trajectory in their life, they'll listen to anything. This is not altogether different from people that just like look up at the clouds. And whatever shape the clouds is, they'll say like that was, you know, a sign. Or, you know, I was driving by and there was that billboard and that billboard told me this. Or, you know, the shape of that cloud was pointing me that way and I knew I needed to move there. Guys, that is, that's, we serve a sovereign God. Far be it for me to ever suggest his sovereign hand is limited. But that's what you call just randomness. Okay? This is, you can make it say anything. That's, it is impossible for you to discern God's will when you are basically trying to discern his will through random circumstances and just trying to piece things together because the truth is you can end up making God's will be whatever you want it to be. There is no hard standard to determine it. And probably the craziest version of them all is reading the tea leaves. You all have, raise your hand if you've heard the phrase reading the tea leaves. I mean, that's pretty common. 
Now, how many of you, by a show of hands, actually knew before tonight what on earth was really going on with reading the tea leaves? Because it's real crazy. I, somehow I had it in my head that there was like, you get a bunch of dry tea leaves and you were studying them somehow. Nope. This is what they do. Drink a cup of tea with loose leaf tea in it. Drink it all the way down till all the tea leaf pieces are left. And then look at the leaves, how they fell in the cup, and it'll tell you your future. The shapes it makes. I actually went to some websites on how do you read the tea leaves. So I was like, somebody teach me. And they're like, make it, you know, if it kind of looks like a book, that's a book to you. And it's foretelling that you have a new chapter in your life coming. Like, okay. Or if it's got this, you know, particular shape that's reminding you that there is a love interest coming in your life or something. It's crazy junk. And it's just the shape of the leaves. You can read the shapes of the leaves themselves, the shapes they make one to another, the shapes of the white spaces between the leaves. It's just random. I mean, I could do that with the wall over there. Just make stuff up. That is, my friends, reading the tea leaves. All these together, reading the tea leaves, uh, tarot cards, looking at a crystal ball, reading the palms, etc. All these crazy things are all under one big umbrella category, divination. Now, let's continue. If divination is trying to foretell the future through all these crazy things, there's another thing called spiritualism. And spiritualism is basically the belief that you can communicate with the dead, that the dead can actually talk to you from the grave. There is a belief that the dead, you know, when they die, they, they don't disappear, they, they stay alive somehow, some way, and they can talk to you through a medium. And this became quite acute in the 1800s in the United States. You want to know where spiritualism exploded? Y'all are going to be surprised. In the same decade, in the same spot that all these cults propped up from. Where you got Mormonism? Where you got Jehovah's Witnesses? Where you got Christian science? You got spiritualism. In fact, a lot of those people were actually known as having these crazy spiritual rapping sessions where they would like move violently. They would have all these crazy little uh, motions and they were all involved with this communication, this spiritualism, this communication with the dead. Then, here, now we're getting to some words we're really familiar with. Sorcery or magic. Now you might have thought I had a typo there, but according to these folks who believe all this junk, even they say we are not those pure innocent magicians. So this isn't magic tricks. This isn't like getting on to people who like do sleight of hand. That's not magic. That's M-A-G-I-C. They're better than that. So they put a K on the end. We are magic. And magic are those people who practice this black magic, this spirit, this demonic spiritual version of magic or sorcery. They purport to control or forecast natural events or effects or forces, whatever, by invoking the supernatural. Often it'll use charms or spells or rituals, and they don't want you to think of them as like the magician you'd hire for your child's birthday party. They are in a different category altogether. Sorcery is basically the practice of black magic, and one associated practice would be like voodoo, which often associate with like Haiti, that, where they would you know, use a little animal or a, a little doll of sorts and do stuff to it and say it would affect the other person. These are these practices of black magic. 
Relatively related is witchcraft. Some would just associate witchcraft and sorcery in one, but historically, witchcraft is really as old as the Old Testament. You'll see it repeatedly mentioned in the Bible. It's a nature religion. Do y'all remember the religions of the land of Canaan that God sent the people of Israel to go drive all those people out? Do you remember one particular thing they worshipped a lot called the Baals or the Asherah poles? That was witchcraft of old. They believed in what was called fertility religions. So if they wanted to have babies or have a fertile ground, get crops. Because if you remember, you couldn't go to Costco. You had to like get everything from the ground. So it was a really big deal. They practiced all these religions to try to get crops, these fertility religions. And witchcraft is essentially that. It is largely a neo-pagan religion that is often called today Wiccan or the craft sometimes. And they, are, they worship often around new moons. So they're really associated still with nature and outdoors. They often worship two gods. They'll call it the horned god or mother goddess. It's pretty widespread though. So, you know, there's no official doctrine here. These people just kind of believe whatever the heck they want. But it's pretty widespread. Okay, Satanism. This is where we're getting real heavy now. Probably the darkest side of the occult. Here's what's really interesting about Satanism. There's really two flavors. There's one flavor that actually doesn't believe in Satan. And then there's another flavor that does. The one that doesn't believe in Satan, strangely enough, is the Church of Satan. The Church of Satan was founded by a man named Anton LaVey in the 1960s. And I know the, I'm familiar, I've known people gone to it. I was in a student ministry years and years ago, and I remember a young man bringing the satanic Bible to student ministry, which is a pretty crazy thing for me to behold. These folks are essentially atheists. They actually use Satan's name to mock Christians. They don't actually believe in him. They just hate Christianity, and so Satan is a great ploy. It's like, you worship Jesus? Well, I'm going to worship the one he hates the most, Satan. But they don't really believe in him. It's just basically... Uh, hedonistic. And you want to know what's really wild? Statistics prove, this isn't me on some hobby horse, statistics prove that Satanists tend to get recruits through these means. You want to know what they are? It's not door-to-door evangelism. It's heavy metal music. Now, believe me, I'm not like on some crusade here, but it's proven. Like, The percentage of Satanists that will say I was introduced to Satanism through heavy metal music is astounding. I'm not saying any heavy metal music. It's clearly particular flavors. Or music, books, and film that glamorize Satan. They tend to almost always come through these cultural entertainment means. That's how they get sucked in. There are another flavor of Satanists that would actually worship Satan himself. But they are fewer and far between, and these are some wicked, 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 dark, twisted folks. But there are folks who are in that camp as well. And then lastly, one just kind of umbrella term we could use is the paranormal. Paranormal, by definition, is something that's not normal. (laughs) And they basically practice that which is beyond scientific understanding. This would be things like clairvoyance. Y'all know what clairvoyance is? It's knowing the future beyond sensory contact. It's this ability to know. Or through telekinesis. Do you know what telekinesis is? It's Star Wars. When he stands there with his hand and can raise the iPhone. How cool. I remember thinking, because I like Star Wars as a kid, thinking, how awesome would it be if you could just move that up? 
I was sitting across the room and I couldn't find the remote and I find it. I'm like, man, wouldn't it be great if I could just pull it right on over here? That's telekinesis, the ability to bend a spoon or to lift something up. This is the paranormal and they believe it is done through the supernatural spiritual means. Now, let's conclude this study then by reminding ourselves that the Bible doesn't just speak of false prophets, doesn't just have a beef with the cults. It has one with the occult. And it speaks at great length about occultic practices from the Old Testament to the New. Just a sampling. Samuel warns against the occult in 1 Samuel 15 when he says, The sin of divination is idolatry. It is iniquity. Because you have rejected this word, God is rejecting you as king, O Saul. He accused Saul of practicing divination. Ezra, who most people believe wrote 2 Chronicles. Ezra, he writes in 2 Chronicles 33 and verse 6 that these Israelites used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. A necromancer is one who practices necromancy, which is basically talking to the dead. All of these were much evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, that's an understatement. Moses warns against them time and again. I just gave you a sampling. He says, do not turn to the mediums or the necromancers. He says, if a person turns to medium or necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against them. Or he says, a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. Or in verse 10, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination, tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. This was not just something recent. This isn't Halloween merely. This is as old as the Old Testament. We turn to the New, where John warns against sorceries that are going to be at play in Revelation 18. Or he says in Revelation 21 and verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexual immoral, the sorcerers, and the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire. Micah, John, uh, let's do Paul. Paul warns against them in Galatians 5 when he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, etc. Micah warns against cutting off the sorcerers and cutting off all the tellers of fortunes. Luke uh, actually explains in detail a sorcerer, an occultic individual. Y'all ever read Acts 13 where they encounter that magician named Bar-Jesus? Bar-Jesus in Luke 13 practices sorcery and is driven out. He is called a son of the devil. Isaiah warns against the mediums and necromancers. And Nahum uh, invades against those who charm the people. Guys, I only gave you a small sampling. I could have gone on for a half hour of all the texts that speak against this. Beware. Beware. That spiritual warfare is no mere metaphor. Now we could leave this place with our spine shivering in living in abject fear of the evil one. 
So let me leave you with a word of great hope. That though Satan is real, there is one who has crushed Satan under his feet. Though his temptations are dangerous, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful, and he will provide a way for you to stand up under it. In other words, Satan is on a leash. His days are numbered. He cannot fully and finally harm you. You need not fear. You must fear He who alone is worthy of our fear, and that is the Lord, a holy, righteous fear. And go to bed tonight trusting in His sovereign providential care that though Satan rages, there is one who is mightier and stronger, who has crushed his head and is one day going to throw him in the lake of fire. So do not be ignorant of Satan's designs. You need to know it. There is indeed an enemy who wages war with your soul, but praise God, you are not defenseless. You have a shield that will deflect the flaming darts of the evil one. It is a shield of faith. You have a helmet that will protect you from his weaponry, and it is the helmet of salvation. You have a breastplate that will protect your torso, so to speak. It is the breastplate of righteousness. Indeed, you have an offensive weapon with which you can wage war with the evil one, and it is not your intellect. It is not your powers of persuasion. It is the sword of the Spirit. So if you want to fight the fight of faith, if you want to recognize in truth that spiritual warfare is no mere metaphor, then my word, folks, be a man or a woman of the word. If you want to fight this fight, you must fight it on your knees in the Bible. For when you take up that sword of the Spirit, Satan will lie. But like Jesus of old, you can hear Satan try to deceive you and you can respond back to him with the truth of the word and say, liar, liar. He is an accuser. Praise God, you have an advocate who stands on your behalf as he hails his accusations. He cannot touch you. Praise God that we have been saved, redeemed, covered in the blood of the Lamb by our great advocate, the one who has crushed Satan, Jesus Christ, my Lord and yours. And so, spiritual warfare is weird, w- real, but I'm going to sleep okay tonight because I worship one who's already won that war. That concludes our study. I sure have enjoyed it with you folks. Let me uh, conclude our time with a word of prayer. And then when I say amen, y'all will be dismissed. And I hope you'll come back next week as Clint begins a five-week series through some books of the Old Testament. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I do thank you that there are so many who wanted to know these deceptions. We don't want to be ignorant of Satan's designs. I pray this has been a useful tool to help us not be. And I do pray that everyone who could hear my voice would awaken anew to the truth that spiritual warfare is indeed no mere metaphor. So may tomorrow when we awake, may we put on the full armor of God, wage war against the evil one, and do so with utmost confidence that the victory has already been won. And so we need not fear. And we praise you for Jesus who alone has made this possible. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Good night, everybody.